Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. I guess you could call Open Mike Eagle a rapper on the rise, but it's been a long, steady, unusual rise. He was born in Chicago, moved to L.A. as a young man. And for the first part of his adult life, he was a teacher. He actually didn't release his first album until he was almost 30. In his rap, in his rhymes, there is humor, which you see a lot in rap. But it's weirder and self-deprecating at times, too. Like that first album he put out was called Unapologetic Art Rap. Kind of a power move, right? Anyway, everything's coming up Mike Eagle now. Alongside Baron Vaughn, Mike co-stars in a new Comedy Central show called The New Negroes. It's a sort of variety show combining live stand-up with original music videos that Mike made with other artists. When I talked with Mike in 2017, he'd just released a record called Brick Body Kids Still Daydream. It's really great. Let's take a listen to Brick Body Complex, the first single from the record. Don't call me a rapper, my mother... Name is Michael Eagle. I'm sovereign. I'm from a line of ghetto superheroes. I holler. I got something to bring to your attention. Attention, 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 attention. I promise you I will never fit in your descriptions. I'm dying. Don't let nobody tell you nothing different. Open Mike Eagle, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, man. I've been um, hovering around the show audio-wise for a long time. <laughs> well, I read an interview that you did maybe, I'm going to say two years ago. Mm-hmm. And the grand finale was you saying that um, you needed to get a TV show and an interview on NPR. Yeah. Well, you got a TV show and an hey, interview on NPR. That's good. We I'm, just filled it in. Congratulations on the TV show. Thanks. I need people to remind me of things I've said more so I can <laughs> I can feel my growth that way. It is a terrifying thing to try and try and get enough perspective on your own life to yeah. appreciate the fact that you are, for example, I mean in in your case, making a living and supporting a family in part. Yeah. By, by making music, for example. Yeah, you know, I've been really good about being able to be very aware of that as a as a benchmark and a thing, especially since, like, you know, 70% of the guys I started with and I still see all the time haven't been able to make that transition. Um, so, you know, it's not something that I lose I lose sight of, but it's like the... It's not the financial ones. It's like the ones that actually make me feel better. Those are the ones I have to remember. What are the ones that actually make you feel better? Like like that. Like I had a, a small goal. Well, I had actually a lofty goal of a television show and getting an interview on NPR. And that happened. And I'm like, oh, that's nice to think that I worked along my weird path and got to the places I was trying to go. Because I often, I often end up, um, I have the bad thoughts a lot. Because I had a lot of weird expectations coming into making music and trying to sell it to people. I, I had a I had a lot of weird expectations about where I would, how I would emerge into the marketplace and the culture. These very lofty, strange ideas, and um, you know. Well, I mean, I think that you have the disadvantage of emerging as a hip hop artist at exactly the time that being an independent hip hop artist was 
it's most difficult. Yeah, I mean, you terrible. hear the you hear these stories about guys in 1999 just hanging out every day with a stack of 12 inches outside Fat Beats sure. Records, selling 112 inches a day while they stand there in freestyle, and then making a hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever. Yeah, and and. I know a lot of those guys and those same guys. There were enough small independent rap labels in places like L.A. and the Bay and, and a few other places where these guys were also getting 30 grand advances two, three times a year to make albums. And all of that went away when people stopped buying physical media at the rate that they were. So, Mike, you're very old to mm-hmm. be uh, oh, it's true, hot young rapper. It is so true. Um, so what is different about your career path from those guys that you were rapping with in, you know, uh, 2002 or 2004 who have jobs now? Well, even then I was old is one thing. Um, the guys I was rapping with, you know, in the early aughts, like I had gone to college already. I already had a bachelor's degree even before I got out here and started really seriously making music. I had had life, had a lot of life already. Uh, And so when I came into it, I knew that, you know, it took a lot of skill. It took a lot of acumen musically. And I didn't have all of that. I had the basics. I was a street corner rapper. I was a freestyle guy. I just didn't have anything to sell. But I was a freestyle on the corner, battle in the streets rapper. That's what I was raised in rap to be. But when I decided to try to understand how the career part of it worked, I was bringing the skill set of somebody who, you know, graduated university, really with no support, you know. So, like, me knowing how to email a person sensibly, (laughs) you know, like, that actually put some distance between me and a lot of my peers, is that, like, I had the tiniest bit of organizational skills and and could kind of see forward that way. I used to... um, I, I called it intern at a place called Project Bloat Records. Uh, Project Bloat, of course, being a long-running event. I know you were listening to some freestyle fellowship yeah. earlier <laughs> today. Remembering, remembering high school fondly. <laughs> um, freestyle fellowship, of course, being the founders of the Project Blow, the long-running open mic in L.A. that I moved here and kind of embedded myself in but at that time they also had a record label they had an office like around the corner from where the event was held and I would just go there all the time like I had a day job on my lunches I would go to that office after work uh, any night that there were people around I would just be in there constantly trying to like understand what the particular moves of an independent rapper was if that was their career like so they taught me how to call up Amoeba or Rasputin and get them to try to buy copies of the new album. And at that that point, it, they were just taking things on consignment. Like, it was, it, the market was already crashing. But they just, they laid out all of those skills. I used to go on tour with guys and just do their merch, just so I could watch and see and understand how everything worked. So the organizational skills, and I, th- I think just me having a little bit more of a sense of pop culture outside of rap, I leaned on that pretty heavily, too, in terms of my content. I think a lot of people, especially in hip-hop and, you know, in in other kinds of pop music as well, if they're not a professional at 25, it's over. Right, 
Wow, yeah. I mean, how old is Chance the Rapper? He's like 22 or something like that. I have no like idea that. how old any of those people <laughs> 21, are. 21, 22 years All old. All those young rich men have the oldest souls, <laughs> and you can just see it in their eyes. I don't know. I don't I, – I'm fascinated by what those people's lives must – like their brains must be like. But when you were 25, did you feel that way? Like did you look around you and say like, oh, a lot of these dudes getting signed are 19 – and uh, I never really looked at getting quote unquote signed that way. Like that was never really part of my path was getting signed to like a major because that was always, especially when I was 25, there was zero room to be a weird rapper on that level. So I was following the paths of independent artists who were already around. I was following Bus Driver and AC Alone and Abstract Rude, like literally following them on tour, you know. So I didn't feel the age thing then like I do now because now the playing field is leveled in so many ways. The weirdness is leveled in so many ways that like age is a little bit more pronounced to me as a difference now than it was then. And also, I keep getting older. We'll have more with Open Mike Eagle. Don't go anywhere. After the break, he'll talk with me about why he used to call his music art rap and why it was a lot harder to be weird back then in hip-hop. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Squarespace allows small businesses to design and build their own websites using customizable layouts and features including e-commerce functionality and mobile editing. Squarespace also offers built-in search engine optimization to help you develop an online presence. Go to squarespace.com NPR for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, it's Joshua Johnson, the host of 1A. Often the news is full of hot takes and snappy comebacks, but on the Friday News Roundup, we take the time to go deep with guests who know the big stories inside out. Catch the Friday News Roundup in the 1A podcast on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Dave. Hi, I'm Graham. And we're two house DJs who have been trapped inside our drum machine. We love it here, and we'd love if you stopped by and visited us every week on Stop Stop Podcasting Podcasting Yourself here on MaximumFun.org. We're just a couple of doofuses from Canada. And listen to our show or perish. (laughs) Stop Podcasting Yourself (laughs) on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the rapper Open Mike Eagle. Let's take a listen to a track off his latest release, an EP called What Happens When I Try to Relax. This song is called Every Single Thing. The economy killed the rhyme star. I'm privileged, born with the silver time card. About as high as I held my heroes. I put my chips on myself like P. Rose. Begin the future, but far more options now. I'm in the crib breaking cardboard boxes down. Through my roots, I respond, react. Cause my folks. What were you like in high school? Uh, depends on when we're talking. I came into it very lost. I was very lost in early in high school. Did you get lost in middle school? I got lost in the fourth grade when I uh, got transferred out of 
the school I went to in the projects and went to school. I got bused to school on the north side of Chicago. I got lost that first day and didn't get unlost until, like, sophomore year of high school. What was the feeling that you had when you got to the north side? Uh, just suddenly, suddenly my identity just didn't exist. Um, I just had no footing socially to to build an identity off of. And so... Most of my memories uh, in middle school and, and early high school was just kind of scrambling for something to hold on to. Because you get there and you don't know the rules, basically? Yeah, and it's a lot of it is like racial stuff. Like, I went from an all-black school to a mostly white school, and I think I experienced a lot of it through that lens at first, but then thinking back about it, it was a lot more about going from a poor school to a school where a lot of kids have money. And the combination of those two things, uh, I just really never felt connected to any people there. And and when I was, there was other people who seemed to be kind of oppressed by the whole thing, either economically or socially. I hung out with a lot of kids who were, like, super sad in the seventh grade when, like, Kurt Cobain <laughs> died. You know what I mean? Like, I hung out with a lot of those. But also, you know, I played sports, so I had that, but also wasn't cool enough to hang with those guys because they were like good with girls and I had no idea what to do with a girl um, at that point in my life, you know. So just a lot of flailing, a lot of grabbing at straws until about midway through high school. You graduated from college and went and got a job. And so what was the point where you thought, I'm not going to be a guy with a job, I'm going to be a guy who makes music for a living? I got laid off in 2009 from being a teacher and and you were, what, like 20, 29 years old? Yeah, I was 28, yeah. So you're a grown-up. Mm-hmm. That year, I also got my first record deal, though. So I got signed in, like, February or March of that year to my first, like, independent deal. I got laid off in the summer. That fall, I was supposed to go on a tour, my first tour, uh, opening for Bus Driver and Abstract Road. And when I got laid off, um, it was like a conversation at home with me and my wife, like, you know, I, I mean, I was driving home already thinking, like, I was going to, you know, go home, get on monster.com, get on idealist.org, um, start sending the resumes out again, you know, because they, the way that they had let me go was real, it was real kind of foul, too, very unexpected. Like, I had this, like, big stack of paperwork to do, and they kind of just waited till it was all turned in and then let me go, like, the next day. It was, it was like, uh, it was, it was really, like, ugly, and it really hurt my feelings at the time. And so I was really down. But, yeah, she was like, no, you should just get on unemployment and try out the music thing. I was like, for real? <laughs> and she was and she said, she said, yeah, she was she was all for it. And, you know, being on unemployment wasn't an easy thing to do at first because of pride. And, you know, you have to lie on the forms about how many jobs you <laughs> apply to every couple of weeks or whatever. But, yeah, I did that. And. You know, it did give me just enough buffer time, though, to figure out, especially when the waning independent music economy, like how to start bringing money in. And it was a good two, three year long process to go from when I would go out of town to do shows and be guaranteed to be losing money to like now I'm like living off of that. Do you think that you could have done that if you weren't married at the time? Probably not. Because, you know, the unemployment wasn't enough. I don't think it would have been enough to have a decent apartment. So I'd had to live with somebody. Um, I would. Yeah, I'd, I'd, 
I would have needed some support from somewhere. And I never really had support, like family support like that before my wife. Let's hear some more music from my guest open Mike Eagle's new album called Brick Body Kids Still Daydream. Let's hear a little bit of No Selling. Gotta keep it beside, I gotta play it cool. Like when you were the girl and she can wake at school. Gonna get the lesson shirt, my stomach never hurt. Strong face, strong dog shown to my competitors. I tell my ACL and wouldn't even limp. I keep my head up high so I can read the blimps. Don't even scream if something hot burns my fingertips. I just wait a couple seconds and I reattempt. I had a real childhood, my truth was wildhood. But crying ain't my style. Cause so that's talking about you in the first person. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's, it's um, that song is, uh, it's, that song's called No Selling. And No Selling is a pro wrestling term. I figured. I didn't know what it meant, but I thought that's probably a pro wrestling thing. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, you know, when... when I know Hulk, about baby faces. Right. Now, yeah. and it's, no selling is something a baby face does, typically, when they're making their comeback in a match. So let's say Hulk Hogan is fighting the Iron Sheik, and Iron Sheik is just beating his tail the entire match. Let's say it's a 20-minute match, 15-minute mark. Iron Sheik goes for something, and Hogan shakes it off. And stares at him like it didn't hurt. That's called no selling, and that's how he starts his offense. Because that's how you know the crowd gets back into a match emotionally. It's like, oh, this is a good guy. He's found some inner strength. Um, but I protracted that in the song to all the instances where we kind of have to do that in life, where like you feel something, but because of the situation or because it's somehow advantageous for you, you um, you put out some other reality of, of what you're going through. You basically, you don't, you know, you don't sell pain. And that just interests me in a, in a kind of PTSD sort of way. And, and that kind of tied into the theme of the album and stuff through all of that. Was your career success so incremental that you... That is the perfect word for it, by the way. <laughs> the best adjective ever to describe my career. Uh, was it... Um, did that leave you without crisis points where you thought this will never work? Or did it reinforce crisis points where you thought this will never work? I never think that it'll never work because it's already working. My crisis point every day is always like, is this a mistake? So I'm really high stressed right now, right? Because I got a new album. I dropped one single that people like it. You know, I got another one coming any moment now. And I'm like, is this a mistake? You know? And the thing is, a mistake for me doesn't end everything. It just makes everything a little bit harder for a while until I do something else that's not a mistake. But the whole time, like, I tend to do so much in, like, you know, different fields that it's, it, all, it all tends to be okay. You know, like nothing uh, – the times where I thought it maybe wouldn't work was like that first tour I went on because I agreed to go on that tour for no money in my own car, uh, only, uh, only you know, just had, mer had like these $5 CDs I was selling. And I was like, I – by the time we got up to Vancouver, I was like, I don't know about the rest of these dates. This is scary business. I, like, got a hotel on Hotels.com, and I was in a street called Hastings Street in Vancouver. Do you know about that place? It, you couldn't have told me it wasn't the meth capital of the world. 
These hotel rooms were not used for people sleeping. They were used for people to rent and do meth. Hotels.com didn't want to tell me that, though. They wanted me to give my money to this person. It was like, you want to you want to sleep here? He was surprised at the... Frank, get a bed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, my my moments of crisis were more about physical danger than they were about the endeavor not really working. Because even when it works, it's not like... I don't make millions. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't make a ton of money. Like I don't, I live according to my means with music. Um, I don't get large budgets to make albums with. I don't get large budgets to do anything with. And I get that because I'm not, I don't make fully sellable music. I don't do that. You know, like that's not really what I'm doing it for. You know, so like my continued existence every day is a victory in some sense. That's what I was saying earlier. Like I'm kind of always aware of it. You know, when you were in high school in 1997 and even when you were out of college in 2004, being weird in hip hop was a really specific and narrow lane. Mm -hmm. It was a tough row to hoe. Mm -hmm. You know, you moved out to L.A. to be weird. Yeah. um, And there was some roots of weirdness here. It was definitely less weird than I thought it was going to (laughs) be. I thought it was going to be so much weirder. But, like, really, I mean, you were looking at these, at a group of, I don't know, 20 people being weird, Mm -hmm. 40 people maybe, you know what I mean, including producers and stuff, you know? sure. And now as we sit here in 2017, one of the really amazing things about hip-hop is that some of the most successful rappers in the world are just the strangest birds walking very weird Mm -hmm. and very much i mean you couldn't find a more project bloaty Mm -hmm. uh 27 year old in the world than kendrick lamar right absolutely you couldn't find a more weird personal insane group of rappers than odd future kanye's crazy uh, you know, it's yeah. Well, I mean, Kanye is sort of. I mean, I think one of the great gifts of Kanye West to the world is that he came out wearing a backpack, making Jay Z records. Right. I mean, and, and it didn't start out being a Louis Vuitton backpack. I used to, I, you know, I used to call my stuff art rap. That was a very reactionary term to there being zero weirdness in the market landscape at that time. Well, Not because, it, as we talked about, I mean, the sort of the left of center lane mm-hmm. was completely dominated by I'm defending real hip-hop, which, or I'm revolutionary in this way. Mm-hmm. And both of those are very, I mean, they both have made a lot of great music, but they're both narrow lanes. They're, there's not a lot, you know, there's I'm, a lot of orthodoxy in those worlds. I mean, and then, you know, so Lil Wayne happened. Yeah. And he is a very weird dude. And he started making, like, his biggest records. He had songs about him being an alien. Like, legit weird. He made cool Keith-type songs in terms of the conceit in which the song was written around. So that was big. Um, I think that opened up the lane for Kanye to be as weird as he wanted to be. And I think that that uh, Watch the Throne record, that's a very art rap album. And like, and, and it was literal in that sense because they're actually talking about a lot of like visual art and paintings and stuff. But then, like, Jay Z definitely takes it very literally. Yeah, but but you know, it, it was a it was a high expression of rap that was completely out of the bounds of the street expectation. And that I think you know those 
things in concert are kind of what opened up, you know, the lanes for everybody to be as strange as they want. Now you can have a young thug in a dress doing crazy rap styles. And he's, you know, one of the biggest artists in the world, you know, and, and he and manages to maintain all of the street cred, which you used to have to forego to do weird stuff. Open Mike Eagle from 2017. His TV show, The New Negroes, co-hosted by Baron Vaughn, another favorite of mine, is on Comedy Central right now. You can watch it there. Black time got style, African cool, got a brother named Charles, if we on that booth. I protect my neck with some magical jewels. It can't knock y'all take them from me. Yeah, yeah. And Cortez, cause I feel like Fabian. My fit got a head like the dome of a stadium. You think it's all good, but it's really get great again. Back at next. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. It's spring out there, folks, and the geese and ducks are very excitable, somewhat territorial. We want you to be careful if you're walking in the park. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. He's on the boards right now. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our thanks to him for sharing it with us. There is a best-of compilation of music from Bullseye that Dan made. You can find it on Bandcamp. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And before you go, uh, there are nearly 20 years of history of this program since I was literally 19 years old. So you can find hundreds and hundreds of interviews on our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also check them out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can hear them all there. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.